Hello and welcome to the Deathcast. I'm your host, best-selling independent author Ian Tott. I'd like to thank you for joining me again as we prepare to take our fourth look at the Atlanta child murders of 1979 to 1981. As always, before we dive into the case, I have a few plugs. If you'd like to follow me on social media, you can find me on Facebook and Instagram at Ian Totten Author. On the Facebook page, there is a tab for the Deathcast group. If you just click on that, it'll send a request to add you to the group. You can also find me on MeWe at Ian Totten Author. If you'd like to help support the show, you can find me on Patreon at Ian Totten Author. If you like podcasts but don't like using the apps, you can find me on YouTube under Ian Totten Author. Every show is uploaded to YouTube from my feed. If you enjoy the show, please consider leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or whatever your favorite podcast app is. It really does help the show. If you have left one already, I just want to say thank you. I appreciate that you appreciate the effort I put into this show. Lastly, two quick plugs for friends of mine. Uh, One of them is my friend Michael Brightside. He does a podcast that currently is YouTube exclusive, but it is going to be going up on podcast platforms here in the near future. Michael's a good guy. He's interviewed me twice, uh, once about my writing and various other topics, once exclusively on true crime. And you can find him on YouTube. Uh, He's interviewed a lot of big people in the writing world. Uh, I know he's interviewed New York Times best-selling author Keith Elliott Greenberg. He's also interviewed Alistair Cross and his writing partner uh, Tamara Thorne. Both of them are number one international best-selling authors of horror, well as a couple Eisner Award-winning uh, comic book writers. So if you're into that kind of thing, uh, check it out. And lastly, I my recommended book used to be book of the week but I don't seem to do that very often just because I have so much stuff to cover is Fallen Muse a story collection by a good friend of mine actually the lady who does all the covers for my books her name is Sarah Scutt it's available on Amazon in both paperback and Kindle format I've read some of it I like Sarah's writing style There's a very artistic flair to her words, and I think it's worth checking out. So again, that's Fallen Muse, a story collection. And it's really, it's a series of short stories that are all interconnected. So check that out. All right, now that the plugs are out of the way, get yourself something to drink, sit back in a chair, close your eyes, relax. I've got my coffee, I've got my cigarettes. Let's go into the crypt.
So when we last looked at the Atlanta child murders, we had left off in February of 1981 with a list victim by the name of Lee Gooch being discovered hiding out in, I believe it was Tallahassee, Florida, from the police uh, because he had charges against him for Grand Theft Auto. Now, on February 5th, 1981, the decomposed body of 14-year-old Luby Jeter was found in the woods close to Enton Road at Van Diver. Now, Patman's case is really the one that gave rise to the idea that the Ku Klux Klan might be involved in some of, if not all, of the killings. And the reason for this is an informant had contacted the FBI and the GBI, which is the Georgia Bureau of Investigation, uh, at some point previous because he just didn't like this certain family. There was something about them. I believe this guy had actually gone to the police as opposed to them coming to him. And eventually he told them that, you know, he suspected this family known as the Sanders of being involved in the Atlanta child murders. And he actually got uh, recordings, wore a wire, of one of the members of the family, by the name of Charles, stating something to the effect of, quote-unquote, we got the little black bastard. He was talking about Luby Jeter, because as the story goes... Sanders and a friend of his had parked their car or their truck in a driveway, and Luby Jeter and another friend of his were riding around in go-karts, and Luby had hit the man's car, and Sanders is supposed to have said, I'm gonna get you, I'm gonna murder you. Long story short, the FB... I mean, there was a lot of evidence that did point to the Sanders family being involved in some of these murders, specifically Luby Jeter's and possibly Terry Pugh's, as it's believed he was the other boy that was with Jeter at the time of the initial incident. And Sanders was well known to the police. He had a slew of drug convictions. I believe he even had a few uh, convictions for child abuse. So, they looked into them extensively, they brought them in, uh, they interviewed Sanders and a number of other individuals, you know, related to his whole scene. It was Sanders, his father, and his brother, and apparently Sanders passed the lie detector test. Interesting, however, is he had a dog that matched some of the dog hairs that were found on a few of the victims. Um, and they went through all of this. Uh, Charles Sanders even kind of gave interviews to the uh, the news. And he doesn't come off well at all in these interviews. Uh, I'm going to see if I can find some of them to, you know, play a few clips from these interviews. But 
by and large, she comes off as a very suspicious individual. Uh, but the GBI decided that, you know, it would be best for everyone involved if they avoided a race war and did not pursue the uh, Sanders investigation further. And so the cases were closed and good amount of files on it were destroyed, which... You know, you would think with everything the city was doing and saying at this point that, you know, they would want to pursue any leads. And this was a fairly credible lead, but as it was so often in this case, you know, politics were more important than lives to those calling the shots. And the whole Sandler's angle was rushed under the rug. In fact, it wouldn't be until the mid to late 80s that articles started coming out mentioning this whole aspect of the case. And it really wouldn't be until for the last few years that it became more widely known, uh, starting with the really good podcast on the Atlanta child murders called Atlanta Monster. And I say it was really good, it was very well done, I'm not knocking these guys' uh, investigative abilities uh, in any way, shape, or form. They do a phenomenal job. They sort of got off track, however, once Wayne Williams got involved in the story. So, they didn't really go down the roads that I ended up going down, but it's still worth listening to. Because they have a lot of archival clips as well as interviews with individuals who were involved in the case. Then, not just Wayne Williams, but victims, relatives, uh, Wayne Williams' defense attorneys from his trial, his current offense attorneys. A lot of good stuff there. But again, they, they dropped the ball as far as, you know, the Sanders family. Also around this time, uh, February of 81, the Fulton County Police saw a car that aroused their suspicions being driven by a man named James Comento. And when they ran the plates on the car, they found that it was registered to the Metro News Productions at 1817 Penelope Road in Atlanta. And... Lo and behold, when they went to the address one night, they discovered that the owner of the business was none other than Wayne Williams, and that the car was in fact registered to him. Because this was in a separate county, Fulton County, either the information never got passed along to the task force, or it was, and it was ignored. Um... I've been fairly hard on the task force throughout this program. But one thing, you know, got to keep in mind is that they had a lot of information coming in. And even with computers, there was just so much to process that unless they had a bona fide lead such as, you know, the pedophile ring that they discovered or... The Sanders family, some things were going to fall through the cracks, especially if it was, you know, a car registered to a 
uh, independent photography business that worked with both the local media as well as the police departments. Even still, you know, William's name is brought up earlier in this case because his father, Homer, as well as Jim Comento, had visited uh, Willie Mae Mathis, who was the mother of the then-missing Jeffrey Mathis, back in the summer of 1980. The reason for that visit was Willie Mae's nephew had drowned in an inner-city swimming pool, and Comento, who was a paramedic, was trying to get the city of Atlanta to permit him to use a police radio in his vehicle. And Comento was hoping that because of what had happened with Willie May's nephew, she would be able to convince the police to allow him to carry this in his car because other individuals in the area who had the ability to, you know, be a first responder due to having these systems in their car were able to save a lot of lives. For Homer Williams, there is no reason given as to why he was at Willie Mae's home with Clemento. We're going to jump back for really quick to a case we had covered last episode. That was the August 20th, 1980 murder of 12-year-old Clifford Jones. And the reason we're jumping back to this case is because... Jones, if you'll remember, was found next to a dumpster wrapped in plastic. And this case was added to the list despite the fact that there were numerous witnesses who said they saw the murder take place. Uh, It was inside of a laundromat. And the witnesses all said pretty much the same thing. They said seeing a 19-year-old male and two accomplices assault the boy before removing the child's clothes and raping him. And apparently the boy, Jones, was screaming and crying at, while this took place. Well, this is the one of the few cases that a, you know, strangulation has actually been proven in the case. But the reason we're jumping back to this is because one of the individuals who actually witnessed this murder was Terry Pugh. And he actually gave testimony to the police, or at least a statement, stating that he had witnessed all of this happen. And six months later, lo and behold... Pugh winds up dead. And I know you're probably thinking, well, you know, the police had all these witnesses that saw this individual commit the murder. Why didn't they bring him and question him or charge him? A reason for that is because the police decided that one of the witnesses, who they described as being mentally retarded, was not a credible witness. This despite the fact that, in other cases, individuals who were described in a similar manner were seen as credible. So, 
there we have another link in between victims. You know, we've got Clifford Jones six months later. We've got Terry Pugh. And right after Terry Pugh, we have his friend, Luby Jeter. And this is important because for a very long time during this case, the police insisted that there were no links between any of the children, that they did not know each other. Now, the next victim on the list actually disappeared on the day that Luby Jeter's body was found, and that was 11-year-old Patrick Balthazar. And Patrick had gone to his father's place of work in order to get permission to go to the Omni uh, complex in Atlanta. For those who don't know what the Omni was, it was a very large sports complex that also housed an arcade as well as an indoor amusement park, and it was a fairly regular hangout for the children of Atlanta at this period of time, obviously because it had the kind of things that children were into. And another thing that the Omni had once a month that the children were into was professional wrestling. And anybody who knows me or has listened to the show long enough knows that I always find a way to get pro wrestling in some way, shape, or form because I'm a fan of the really old stuff. There is a slight connection to professional wrestling in the Atlanta Child Murders in that at that period of time, Georgia Championship Wrestling, which was owned by Jack and Jerry Briscoe, Ole Anderson, and Jim Barnett, ran the Omni at Atlanta once a month. And as these cases you know, really started going cooking and the police started realizing that a lot of the victims like to go to the Omni and hang out. They decided that, you know, the wrestling matches were probably a haven for predators. You've got a lot of underage people going there to play video games, ride the rides in the amusement park, and go to wrestling unaccompanied. So they started doing some digging, and this set them off on a bit of a side task. One of the things that really hooked their attention and really isn't mentioned that much concerns Jim Barnett. For those of you who don't know, Jim Barnett was a wrestling promoter who at one time ran the largest territory in the world down in Australia, the original World Championship Wrestling, from the 1960s through the 1970s before coming back to Atlanta to help settle a dispute in a wrestling war. Barnett had a lot of political connections. He had a lot of friends in high places, uh, among them Jimmy Carter, who would eventually become president, as well as Ted Turner, the owner of WTBS, which at that time was still just a regional television channel. When he, this is at that time, I mean when he took over uh, running of Georgia Championship Wrestling. Barnett was also a very open gay man. Remember I talked last episode how there was no differential between 
homosexuality and pedophilia among the police forces they saw it as one and the same if you were a gay man it meant to them that you probably liked young boys as well and because on a number of cases they had discovered that a white man was seen in the passenger seat of the vehicle they put two and two together and decided to question Jim Barnett and Ole Anderson concerning this. Uh, I was unable to find much about this questioning, but it doesn't appear that it went very far. Again, Jim Barnett was fairly wealthy, and he was a very powerful man who moved among, you know, elite circles. Before anybody says I'm casting aspersions on Jim Barnett, rest assured I'm not. It was something interesting that I came across during my research of this case, and I thought that it was at least important enough to mention in passing. Back to Patrick Balthazar. Uh, after he went to his dad's place of business and got permission to go to the Omni, he did not come home that evening. Um, Balthazar was known to spend the night out at friends on occasion. Um, he was a fairly unpredictable kid who, you know, would skip school if he didn't feel like going. And his movements were very hard to pin down. He was a street smart kid who was described as tough but also uh, a kid who would quote-unquote do anything for money. And he told this to a teacher, and when she pressed him on it, he pretty much, you know, without spelling it out, told her that that anything meant just that. He also told friends that he was going to catch the killer himself and get the reward money. Patrick had a a lot of connections to victims on the list, one of which was Jimmy Ray Payne, who we're going to get to hopefully this episode. But there are unconfirmed reports that he was running with the same boys who were seen over at the various pedophile houses throughout Atlanta. One story about uh, Balthazar was he was over at Payne's house one day when Patrick Patman Rogers uh, murder was announced and they went outside and according to Patrick a man in a white van was watching them and the two of them ran now later Jimmy Ray Payne's sister would identify Wayne Williams as the man who was in that white band watching him that day. Another incident involving Balthazar, he and a friend were destroying furniture when a man accosted them, and Balthazar escaped, calling the task force, stating that the killer was after him. The police never responded to the phone call. So, it's obvious that 
Balthazar knew he was playing with fire in there. You know, he probably did at 11 years old think that, you know, he was strong enough, tough enough, bad enough to stop whoever this individual was. But unfortunately for him and many others, this was not the case. On Friday, February 13th, a cleanup man came upon the body of Patrick Balthazar. Of note, uh, Balthazar was listed as having died of ligature strangulation. A length of white rope stained with a gummy black substance was found nearby. This same substance was found on fibers on a number of the other victims in the Atlanta child murders. A dental assistant who was on her way to work that morning uh, contacted police stating that she had seen a green car parked in the general vicinity of where Patrick Balthasar's body was found and that a white man with shaggy hair was driving it. Also, on Friday, February 13th, the skeletal remains of a child were found on Suber Road. They would eventually be identified as belonging to 10-year-old Darren Glass. Although, initially, they stated that the body was Jeffrey Mathis. Three days later, on February 19th, 13-year-old Curtis Walker disappeared. Curtis lived at Bowen Homes, where, if you'll remember, the boiler explosion had taken place, which took the lives of four children and two adults. Walker's last suspected location was at the rear of a building on Bankhead Highway, where witnesses said they saw a young boy get into a yellow car. Another connection between these murders is that Curtis Walker at one time lived across town at the Thomasville Heights housing project where both Patman Rogers and Aaron Weich lived. On March 2nd, 1981, 15-year-old Joseph Jojo Bell disappeared. Jojo is one of the murders in this case that initially stacked my attention. Uh, he seemed like a, a pretty hardworking, straightforward kid. He had a job at a fast food restaurant called Cap and Pegs, which we're going to talk about a little more shortly. Uh, he attended school. He was a member of the boys club and for all intents and purposes it seemed as though you, you know he was trying to do the right things and make something out of himself. There are some conflicting accounts that Jojo was living with his grandmother at the time he disappeared although I have found nothing to substantiate that. The last time he was seen, uh, he was leaving Cap and Pegs, which was a fast food restaurant where he, I'd said he worked at. The owner saw him leaving to go play a game of basketball with a friend, and he was never seen again after playing that game of basketball. Now, later, 
the guy he was playing basketball with would say that he saw Bell get into a station wagon with Wayne Williams, but at the time of his disappearance, he did not know the type of vehicle he had gotten into or who was driving it. The day after JoJo disappeared, Cap and Pegs got a phone call from him, uh, and according to the woman who answered the call, he stated he was almost dead. On March 7th, JoJo's mother received two phone calls from a woman stating that she had JoJo and he wasn't like the others. She liked him but and wanted to release him. The police did try to trace these phone calls, but they were traced to an area of Atlanta that was seen as too big to do a house-by-house search of, I believe it was northeastern Atlanta. Going back a hair to the place that JoJo Bell worked at, the Cabin Pegs, uh, it has a lot of different connections to other victims of this case, uh, as well as to Wayne Williams himself. A 23-year-old ex-convict by Michael McIntosh lived right across from Cap and Pegs. Just down the street was the grocery store where 9-year-old Yusuf Bell had gone to buy some snuff and vanished. Just behind Cap and Pegs was the community center where... Patrick Patman Rogers went as well as where Billy Starr was going when he was sent out to pay a bill for his mother. As for Wayne Williams' connections to Cap and Pegs, if you remember, I mentioned uh, that he was a music manager. Now, supposedly, he was putting together a musical group similar to the Jackson 5 called the Gemini. And on the contracts that Williams had drawn up for this uh, musical group, when he put down the address, he put down the address for Cap and Pegs. And when this was brought to his attention uh, at a later date by a reporter, Williams was quick to say that he had gone to his lawyer, the lawyer had accidentally put the wrong address in, and that Williams had put the right address in, in the presence of his lawyer, something that his lawyer refuted by stating that the address on the contract was the one that Williams had given him, and that he knew nothing of any sort of change to the address. JoJo's sister would say that she had seen... Williams at Cap and Pegs on a number of occasions, watching her and her brother, while the owner of Cap and Pegs would state that Williams was a regular customer. Williams himself said that he had never been there as he quote unquote dislikes fish. None of this was information that was introduced at trial by either the prosecution or the defense. But Cap and Pegs has further 
disturbing things attributed to it. The owner of the restaurant stated that he had seen at least three attempted kidnappings taking place outside of the restaurant, and he had given the police a license plate number from one of these kidnappings. The owner, and by the name of Richard Harp, also stated that Jojo Bell had socialized with known homosexuals and that he had seen both Jojo and his friend Timothy Hill leaving with men on a number of occasions. Someone else who was involved in this whole scene was the convict I mentioned a moment ago, uh, Michael McIntosh. If you'll remember, he lived right across the street from Cap and Pegs. So, we, again, we have all of these connections uh, of the missing and murdered young men uh, located at points throughout Atlanta, as well as, you know, connections to them knowing each other. JoJo was also known to frequent the house on Gray Street that was owned by Tom Terrell. If you will remember, Tom Terrell was the convicted pedophile whose name kept popping up again and again in all of these cases. On March 13, 1981, 13-year-old Timothy Hill disappeared. Timothy Hill was the boy who I just mentioned as having been a running partner of Jojo Bell. He, too, frequented the house on Gray Street, and initially, the police did not put him on their list of missing and murdered children, instead attributing him as a runaway. Eventually, Timothy Hill would be put on the list, and he is the last of the victims who were under the age of 17 to be added to the list. Not long after this, the paper in Los Angeles published a report stating that not all of the missing and murdered children in Atlanta were being given the same priority as those who were officially on the list. Uh, and this pretty much just served to put egg on the faces of the people running the task force, notably Lee Brown, who apparently threw quite a bit of a fit over this. Which, to be honest, uh, he deserved to have some egg thrown on his face at this point because he had completely bungled the investigation since he was brought in, which isn't to say that it was entirely his fault, because prior to Brown being put in charge of the investigation, it had been run pretty abysmally. Things were really heating up in Atlanta at this point. On March 20th, residents of the Techwood Homes Housing Project uh, began to protest what they saw as a lack of ability and caring on the police's department. In fact, a lot of them stated that since the police were doing nothing to protect them, their children, they would do it themselves. 
and they formed what they called a bat patrol, uh, wherein the residents would go around with baseball bats in order to take care of anyone uh, that they saw as being suspicious. On this very same day, a guy was arrested in Connecticut who went under the pseudonym of Larry Marshall, and he was the first individual that the police stated was a suspect in the case, the reason being that he had a son named Timothy Hill. His son was not the same Timothy Hill that went missing, but Marshall did state that he knew the Timothy Hill who had gone missing, and he went further and said the reason that he had left Atlanta to begin with was that the missing Timothy Hill had left a letter at his home from a Reverend E.C. that said he needed to get out of Atlanta. Uh, the real reason that Marshall fled Atlanta was that he had a pending trial for a robbery. But again, the police put this man's name out there. I think that they did this in order to kind of draw some of the heat off of themselves because along with the Bat Patrol, the vigilante group known as the Guardian Angels had also come down to Atlanta around this time and were patrolling the streets as well as offering to teach children self-defense techniques. Uh, this is interesting because the people were still under this impression that the children were literally being grabbed off of the streets by some boogeyman that was driving around and, you know, offering them candy or something when, at least in my opinion, an opinion of quite a few individuals who were associated with the case, that was not what was happening. These kids were willingly getting in the car with somebody that was known to them. Also on that date, March 20th, 1981, the first adult would make the list of Atlanta's missing and murdered children. This was 21-year-old Eddie Bubba Duncan, who lived at the Techwood Homes. It's the same place that the Bat Patrol was going on, and a lot of people saw Duncan's disappearance for some reason as the killer coming and saying, oh, well, you're going to do this? Well, let me show you what I can do. Uh, there was this misconceived notion in the Atlanta murders that this guy who was committing all these murders was, you know, like some criminal mastermind. When, in reality, it's more likely that he was an opportunistic sexual uh, predator. It is interesting, though, that Duncan made the list as, again, he wasn't a kid. He was a full-grown adult. So his inclusion among these murders, as well as a few others that we're going to get to, really blows the whole uh, idea of Atlanta's missing and murdered children to smithereens because he, he wasn't a child, despite how the police tried to portray him and others who they added to the list. 
Duncan disappeared uh, about a mile away from where Terry Pugh's body would be found, where Curtis Walker lived, and where he disappeared. So, I'm hoping you can kind of see that these deaths and disappearances are happening in small clusters throughout the city. And when Duncan disappeared, there was a lot of thought being thrown around that he might have known information about who the killer or killers were. Not just him, but the other adults who would end up uh, being put on the list of the missing and murdered. Although this has never been substantiated. The police tried to say that he was childlike, um, which again has never been substantiated. He was a full-grown adult who held down jobs and did odd jobs around the community. They also said that they were keeping such a tight eye on the children that the killer had to move on to older, more easily accessible prey. Getting back to the suspect that the police named Larry Marshall, uh, it's known that he had begun taking an interest in children and that he also had a, air quotes, roommate who considered himself to be gay, but Marshall not to be. Marshall's roommate, a guy by the name of Frankie Meeling, stated that, uh, and whether this is true or not, I have no idea, but according to Meeling, in their culture, whichever one was the dominant of the two, that individual was not seen as being gay. Meeling further went on to state that Timmy Hill had come to visit the two of them on numerous occasions, and Meeling's sister verified this. Meeling also went on to state that Marshall had taken Timmy Hill with him to Uncle Tom's house. Uncle Tom is who I've talked about earlier, uh, Tom Terrell. Terrell owned two homes on Gray Street. He was a 63-year-old convicted pedophile. Uh, Of these two homes, he lived in one of them while the other was abandoned and he allowed young boys to use it as they saw fit. Frankie Meeling stated that he had seen at least 10 of the victims from the list coming and going from this house at one point or another. Now, according to Terrell's neighbor, uh, Timmy Hill would often sit outside the house waiting for Tom to get home and that Tom would give the young boy money so that he would spend the night with him. This is where the information about uh, Timmy Hill spending the night of March 12th, remember he vanished on the 13th at Tom Terrell's house. If you remember back to the opening of the show, the news clips I played, 
Tom Terrell was the man talking about how Timmy Hill was spent the night at his house and then was supposed to come back the next day because the 13th was his birthday. Uh, the way he says it is just really sleazy and you can grasp what he's really saying the way he says it. What he's really saying is the kid was going to come back because it was my birthday and I was going to do what I wanted to him. Uh, these same neighbors showed investigators a substance that was stored in a five-gallon bucket that was said by these neighbors the kids used to get high. And supposedly this substance was something that they inhaled that smelled like acetone and looked like mud. And this is important because as the police would learn, Timmy Hill's family had actually seen him disappear. In fact, he had gotten into a taxi cab with a man, and according to Hill's little sister, the man put what appeared to be mud on Hill's face. They also learned from this neighbor that Larry Marshall, the suspect, had taken uh, Timmy Hill to a warehouse to get a Coke, when in fact what was going on was they had told Hill that he could go inside this warehouse and take anything that he wanted. But that's not what happened. David Wilcoxon was inside the warehouse. Remember David Wilcoxon? I mentioned him last episode. He was the pedophile that lived across from the pool. Wilcoxon was inside the warehouse waiting for Hill. And when Hill came inside, he brutally raped the young boy. When the boy came out, he told those who had brought him over there in tears that Wilcoxon had sexually assaulted him. The question I'm left to ponder with this is, why did the police not seriously consider these individuals as suspects? Because they didn't. Yeah, they were looking into them, they got them for child molestation, but they never went further with it. Even after they learned that Larry Marshall had left town the day after Timothy Hill went missing because they had actually spoken to Jojo Bell who gave them some information. Now, according to Tom Terrell, he had insisted that Timmy Hill go missing on the day that he vanished. Um giving him 50 cents to catch a bus, and that they had both taken the same bus, but Terrell had gotten off at the Omni while Timmy rode on. And according to Terrell's roommate, uh, Timmy had come back that afternoon to see Terrell. Again, remember, the 13th was his birthday, uh, but Terrell was out, and Timmy had wandered off after that. Given all of the coincidences in this case, I think, uh, you know, the story that these two men were feeding the police was just that. I think it was a crock of shit. Be that as it may, though, 
you know, the police who were supposed to be able to figure this stuff out didn't do anything with the information. These SOBs kept on doing what they were doing until they were arrested and sent back to jail. On March 30th, 1981, a body was found in the Chattahoochee River south of the Georgia 166 Bridge. First, it was thought the body was that of Jojo Bell, but it turned out to be of his friend, Timothy Hill. The next victim who joined those on the list was 20-year-old Larry Rogers, who actually went missing on the 22nd, although he was not reported as missing until the 30th. And once again, the police stated that he was childlike and quote-unquote retarded, although his family refuted these assertions. And around this time is when the famous uh, concert for Atlanta's missing and murdered children took place at the Civic Auditorium. This is where Frank Sinatra and a number of other uh, prominent musicians and celebrities came down in order to help raise money for the task force as well as sweeten the reward. Uh, there's not a whole lot to talk about as far as this aspect of the case. It was a lot of, you, you know, the mayor and everyone else in the city uh, brown-nosing these celebrities and touting how much they cared about for the children of Atlanta and how they were really working hard to solve this case. One thing of note about the fundraiser is that Wayne Williams' father, Homer Williams, is actually on videotape uh, on the stage at the Civic Auditorium taking photographs of Frank Sinatra and a number of other musicians as they performed one of those things that makes you scratch your head and think how did he have enough pull to get up there we're gonna call it there for this week uh, again I'd like to thank you for joining me we have five more cases to cover followed by the identification of Wayne Williams and his trial as well as you know, what I think happened. So, until next week, stay safe and stay morbid.
Welcome, welcome to the Dead Cast.